And uh, he, towards the end of the song, he, he writes, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But that wasn't the end of the story. The end of the, the song goes like this, then pealed or, or rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So on this second Sunday of Advent, when we, when we celebrate this theme of peace, why could Longfellow write that there was peace on earth, goodwill towards men? Well, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So I don't know where you're at this morning in terms of uh, uh, peace with God, or maybe your week has, has brought you uh, the opposite of peace. Maybe you're, uh, maybe you're in turmoil this morning. I don't know, or maybe, maybe everything is great. The Prince of Peace has come to you in the person of, of Jesus Christ, and he's, he says to you, peace be to you. So peace to you on this second Sunday of Advent. And uh, we're going to pray and get started back in Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah 10. If, uh, if you have a Bible or scroll there to Nehemiah 10, um, we're going to be in Nehemiah this week. 10. Sean's going to preach next week, Nehemiah 11 and 12, and then we'll end it in Nehemiah 13. And uh, after that, uh, in, into the new year, uh, we are going to get into the, the first three chapters of Revelation, because I'm a wimp and I don't want to do the whole book yet. I'm not ready. Okay? No, ju- don't judge me, please. And then after Revelation, we're going we're gonna to finish Exodus. We started Exodus a while ago, and now we're going to come back and we're going to finish it up uh, as, as the God who delivers his people to worship them. So that's where we're headed. But right now, we're still in the book of Nehemiah. So with that theme of peace or mind, let's go to God in prayer. Father, we, we come to you. Uh, we even sang this morning, we're weak and unstable ones. We, uh, we, we, um, we are ones that have even brought judgment on ourselves because of our sins this morning. Father, we, we, are, we are those who are not worthy of your love, and yet you come to us, and like you stilled the waters with your words, you, you say, peace, be still. So we want to be still this morning and know that you are God. On the second Sunday of Advent, we, we want to remember the God of the universe gave up his right to the throne of heaven to sit beside God the Father and come in human flesh. And he didn't consider himself anything. He took on the form of a servant and humbled himself, even to death, even death on the cross, so that we might have peace with God. Thank you. Oh, great Christ. Thank you, Prince of Peace. Thank you, 
Spirit of God for revealing Jesus to us. And thank you, God our Father, for planning all of this. Father, thank you that Jesus didn't have to convince you to love us, that you really do love us. Thank you that this peace isn't just Jesus's or the Spirit's, but it is peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ and from the Spirit. So we come to worship you, God. And we're asking for peace even as we open your word. We're we're asking for peace to rule over us. Let your peace rule over us. You said you are not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so here we come to you, uh, weak and unstable, frail, fragile people who can't even keep ourselves alive. We don't keep our hearts beating. We don't keep ourselves breathing. You do all of that. So we submit ourselves to you. We thank you that you're not only our creator and our sustainer, but you are a redeemer. So we come to you, um, great redeemer, and we ask that you would unveil Christ in all of his glory, all of his riches, all of his beauty, all of his goodness, justice, and righteousness to us this morning. Even as we look in Nehemiah 10, we, we pray that you would help us, be, because of your mercies, you would help us to covenant, to commit to you, to, to live lives of holiness. You would help us, because rooted in the righteous mercy of our God, to live committed Christian lives. And we thank you that this is not based on our own merit. And we thank you that our commitment is is founded in your commitment to us. We read in your word that we did not first love you, but you first loved us. And so we ask, Spirit of God, you would come and, and do the work of unveiling Christ to our minds and to our hearts, that we might know and Feel the love of God. God, we thank you that uh, peace on earth and goodwill towards men is not something we bring, but it's something you bring. And we thank you that we, we have uh, brothers and sisters in this city and surrounding this city and in Oregon and in the U.S. and beyond that love you and are bringing the message of peace on earth, goodwill towards men because you've saved them. And so we, we pray for our, our fellow partners in the gospel, our, our, our kingdom partners, God, that you would grant them joy and hope and peace as they proclaim your word, as they come together around your word, as they feast on your word and as your spirit abides with them and sends them out to spread your peace, I pray that you would give them peace and joy and hope. God, thank you that we're not alone here, that the kingdom is way bigger than the branch or even Corvallis, that uh, the bounds of your kingdom have no end. And we pray for these gospel partners that you um, you would help them to be faithful to the gospel. So we pray for Northwest Hills, we pray that they would be faithful to the gospel, that they would not lose it, they would hold on to it, they would preach it and proclaim it with boldness and gentleness. We pray for First Baptists, and as they come together this first Christmas season with their new pastor, we pray 
that peace, the, the, the peace of Christ would dwell with them and it'd be very obvious to, to the surrounding people, to the neighbors and, and friends that know them, that they'd be a place of, of welcome and peace there, here downtown. God, we pray that you would bless uh, all, all of our students who are taking finals and um, wrapping up the year. We ask that you'd give them, give them confidence in you, that you'd give them the ability to discern and, and wisdom to cut through what it, what it actually means. Their grades are not their identity, that, their, um, that the work that they do does not define them, but you do through Jesus Christ. You define us as sons and daughters of God. And so as I pray, as, as they wrap up and they go home for Christmas, there wouldn't be a letdown in their, in their spiritual need for you. I pray that all of us, as we, as we head into the holidays and, and things change and seasons change and our schedules change, that, that you would help us to be delightfully hopeful and hardworking in you. You would, you would, you, you would inspire us. You would, you would help us by your spirit to, to grasp onto Christ and to share him with our family and friends. And Father, we pray for our world. Uh, we just pray for the turmoil that's all over the place in China, in Iran, and in, in other places. There's suffering natural disasters and, and other, other kinds of disasters. We ask that you would be near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. We pray for those who are, who are hurting, either because they have been persecuted or oppressed. We ask that you would bring your peace to them. And God, we, we not only ask for them, we also ask for those who oppress, God, that you would bring justice to them, but you'd be merciful and, and unveil their need for Christ that they might repent and turn to you. And Father, as we think of ourselves, we pray that you would meet with us this morning. We ask again, open our eyes to see Christ in all of his beauty. God, your word is a light to our feet, a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. The the flower fades, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would please you, would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer and our king. And may the zeal of the Lord of hosts perform all of these things. Amen. So we are in this story of Nehemiah. It's actually a story about God who is restoring, rebuilding his uh, city and restoring his people through his word and restoring them to obey his word. You remember uh, in this section that we're in, in, in chapter seven and eight, it starts, God starts the, the important part of the restoration the walls were done, but the most important part was yet to come, and that was the restoring, the reviving of God's people. And the way he did it was by reading his law and explaining his law to them. 
And if you remember the story, the reading of the law and the explaining of the law brought conviction to his people. And so in chapter 8, when the law is read, the people begin to cry because they remember their sin. They remember that they've offended a holy God. And so the conviction comes and they weep and they grieve and their leaders tell them, put away your crying. Put away your crying. It's the feast of booze. We've, we not only realize we're sinners, we realize that we have to celebrate because God is good. So put away your crying for now and celebrate God's goodness to us. But the celebration doesn't last forever. They, they stop the celebration after seven days because that's what they were supposed to do. And then they turn to confession of sin. And this doesn't, this holiday, this uh, holy day, uh, doesn't seem to be commanded in the law as such. They have to do it every year. But the, the law had convicted them of sin. And so here they come and they confess their sin. The law read brings conviction they're told to celebrate, and now they confess their sin. Confession of sin is a public acknowledgement of belief, of, of, of a belief or of a sin, a public acknowledgement of a belief or a sin. But just confession doesn't show a change of heart. And I think starting in verse 938, we see what confession is meant to lead to, and that is repentance, a commitment to God. Repentance is a, a complete change of heart and mind regarding one's attitude towards God one's, and one's individual actions. So repentance, confession is a public acknowledgement, and repentance is a turning. So just because they confessed their sin, admitted their sin, and leaned on God's mercy doesn't mean anything actually changed. But in chapter 9, verse 38, they said, because of all this, we make a firm covenant or a commitment in writing on sealed documents to you, God, that we want to obey your law. So I wonder, how would you know if someone is a Christian? Not, not what makes someone a Christian, but how would you, how would you know they are a Christian? Because it's not enough to just admit you believe or admit you're wrong, you're a sinner. Those who are truly changed repent of their sins, they turn away from their sins. And their changed life is evidence of a changed heart. Their changed life is not evidence of a perfect life, it's evidence of a, of a changed heart, someone who is continually repenting and believing. So what does a Christian look like? What does a changed life look like? What does commitment to God look like? Now, by God's grace, the reading of the law brought conviction. They were commanded, they commanded celebration, they commanded confession. And now, because of God's mercies, these people commit. They make a promise to God to come under his law again, to renew their covenant obligations to him. I want you to think of an estranged couple named John and Grace. Fictional, okay? They've been separated because of the wife's unfaithfulness. Grace has cheated on John. And let's assume for the sake of argument that the husband, John, hadn't been unfaithful in any way in his marriage. He was a husband that didn't work too much or too little. He, was, he always told the truth, but he was merciful, kind, patient, and gentle. He was a fierce protector and tireless provider for his wife. 
And when Grace left and cheated on him, he didn't grovel to get her back, but he remained faithful and loving. He provided for her when she had needs. He wrote love letters reminding her that though she had left, he would give her a home and a husband if she would return. And when she made her decision to come back, it wasn't because of anything good in her. Grace remembered John's goodness. She saw her evil, and she knew that if she returned to home, he would not throw her sins in her face. He would not make her try to earn his love, but he would be faithful and loving. So what, should, what, what, what do you think someone like Grace would do after she returned home? Well, in this fictional scenario, I think she would obligate herself to her husband. She would, she would recommit. She would take marriage vows again, and she would say, you know, John, I was wrong, and I want to recommit myself to you. And I think John would expect her to, right? It's hard for us to imagine such a scenario, but friends, that's exactly the picture of God and his people. God brought them back from exile to rebuild and restore them. They had left. They had been thrown into exile because of their sins, because of their adultery, their idolatry. And God brings them back. And when they return to him, they obligate themselves to obey him because of his mercy. So they were, as my friend says, walking in the ways of mercy. They were walking in ways worthy of God's mercy. So what did God's mercies renew in them? Their commitment to God reveals what God's mercies renewed in them. So true conviction, here's, here's the main point of the sermon. True conviction leads to true repentance resulting in meaningful commitment. True conviction leads to true repentance resulting in meaningful commitment. True conviction leads to true repentance resulting in meaningful commitment. I think this is one of the things that's maybe lacking in the Christian church, in my own life, and, and maybe in some of our lives, is based on the grace of God, what should we commit to do? What should we commit to do? Well, just, just three points to hang our hats on, three hooks to hang our hats on this morning. The people of the commitment, the characteristics of the commitment, and the essentials of the commitment. So quickly, the shortest point here this morning is the people of the commitment. Um, I, I'm not going to read all the names for you in, uh, in the first 27 verses of chapter 10, but basically what we have here are some categories of people. In, in Nehemiah uh, 9, 38 through 10, 1, we see that Nehemiah and Zedekiah are mentioned. Most people think that Zedekiah is Nehemiah's secretary, and they're, and they're just mentioned. They're at the front as sort of the, the governing leaders of God's people. These are some of the people that are going to make the commitment to him. And then in chapter 10, verses 2 through 8, we see the priests. You can see that the, the priests are named. And you know, Ezra's family, Ezra's not named, but his family is named in verse 2. Sariah is the family that Ezra's from. And, and so we have the governing people. We also have the priests, you know, like, like Ezra who read and explained the law. And then we have some of the Levites, the Levites mentioned in, in 9 through 13. And some of their names are, are found 
uh, with those who explain the law in, in Ezra and then in Nehemiah chapter 8. And so you have the governing authorities, the priests, the Levites, who were sort of the, the servants of the temple. And then the last 14 through 27, you have 40 plus names of the heads of people. Uh, the heads of, of the people as, as uh, a bunch of people who returned, for the first returnees from the exile. So here all they are. And the names are meant to represent the entire people. These are, these are names written down for perpetuity, for, for time immemorial. And here God, here these people are committing themselves to God as God's people to obey his law. They want to write it down in a covenant, in a, in a commitment. Their conviction is so real that they're willing to sign their names on the dotted line. They're willing to put their money where their mouth is. Pastor's probably not supposed to say that, right? It's referring to betting or something. I don't know. But they're willing to do it. They're willing to take the, uh, they're willing to take the responsibility for that. And here are God's people gathered together. Let's sign our names down. Let's, let's, let's renew the covenant and, and, and come back to our God. That's the people of the commitment. But what about the characteristics of the commitment? In chapter 10, verse 28 through 29, we see one, we, we're going to see two characteristics of this commitment. And, and one, the first one is the scripture supremacy. Friends, it's God's word alone that sets the bounds of this commitment, this covenant. Verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. So they make a commitment to God based on the authority of Scripture. Scripture is supreme. It's God's law that's going to rule them. Not, not some made-up laws by Nehemiah or Ezra, not, not some extra religious rules. It's God's law, God's law alone that's going to direct them. Is going to regulate their, their lives. The Bible is the supreme authority in their life. And they take it so seriously, again, they put themselves under a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. If you've ever read the book of Deuteronomy, that's a second giving of God's law after the people break it. God gives the law again, and, and, and the people are gathered around these, these two mountains. And in, in chapter 28, there are both curses and blessings for, for disobeying and obeying the law. And these people are re-entering into this. They're saying, let, let the curse be on me. Friends, it shows a great amount of trust in God's mercies to bind yourself to a covenant like this. The mercies of God to say, I will enter into this covenant, which I know comes with a curse, and we will take it if we disobey it. It takes a lot of trust in God's mercies. I don't know how much they knew. 
about the coming one, the Jesus who came in Advent. I don't know how much they knew, but they didn't know all of it. But they trusted themselves to God's mercies. Because there, there would come one, there would come one who would also bind himself to the, to the curses and the oaths of the covenant. And, and, and this one, the Lord Jesus Christ who took on flesh, he, he bound himself to obey the law perfectly, and so he did. And you can see it all through the New Testament. Everything, he did, everything that was commanded of him, he did perfectly. He fulfilled the law. Friends, he also obligated himself to the curses of the covenant. Even though he fulfilled the law perfectly, his oath perfectly, and walked with God, and he would have earned eternal life, instead, he took on the curses. He took the curses on himself. Like I said, I I don't know how much the people of Nehemiah knew about that, but what they did know was there was a God of mercy who brought them back into the land, and they knew that they could trust him. They knew that they could commit their lives and, and hearts to him. And they could say, we submit ourselves under these curses. God's word is authoritative in their lives. Friends, maybe one of the reasons we don't live committed Christian lives is because God's word is not supreme in our lives. It's not authoritative. Or, or maybe it's deep, just because deep down we just don't trust him, his mercies. I don't know what it is for you. Or maybe we've just never experienced his mercy. We, we've only experienced the harshness of a, of, a, of a father growing up that is nothing like God. But those who have experienced the mercy and love of God as one who has, let me tell you, you can trust him. If you've experienced the mercy and love of God, you know that his authority is worth staking your whole life on. And this is the first characteristic of the covenant, the scripture's supremacy, the the authority of the Bible, the authority of God's law. Isn't it beautiful? The second characteristic found in verse 32 is the people's responsibility. And part of this commitment was that they were taking on personal responsibility. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God. What they're saying is, if not me, then who? If not you, then who? If you will not take responsibility for your own discipleship, then who will? If you will not take responsibility to do your part to make sure corporate worship happens, then who will? So they obligate themselves, especially in regards to worship in the temple or what they call the house of God. They took responsibility by giving themselves away. So they gave of their time, talent, and treasure. They took personal responsibility that this was the people's responsibility. And I, I know personal responsibility can be overdone, right? Some of you are saying, like, that boomer, right? <laughs> How dare that boomer tell me? You know, I, I sound like a boomer harping on a millennial. Well, let's get one thing straight, though. I'm not a boomer, okay? I from Gen X, all right, which may not make you feel any better, but let's just get it straight. But this isn't a Gen X principle. This isn't a boomer principle, 
This isn't Gen Xers and Boomers just harping on millennials. This is a biblical principle. Taking personal responsibility for the Christian life, for the worship of God, for obeying the rules, for obeying Christ because of his great mercy and love. Personal responsibility is a biblical principle. And isn't it a beautiful thing? God gives us responsibility in this thing called the Christian life. He allows us to cultivate and create as image bearers of the one true creator. We, we cultivate, this is our story, friends. We cultivate and create within the rules of God's word. The, the mercies of God renew us to see the beauty of God's good authority and the responsibility that he's given us. This is a, a meaningful commitment. What, we, what should we take responsibility for? For families, for our, our churches, for our, our schools, for our neighborhoods, for the stranger, for the outcast. We take responsibility for all this because God has given us responsibility in this life. And because of his mercies, he helps us to do all of these things. So true conviction of sin leads to true repentance resulting in meaningful commitment. God's authoritative word and the people's responsibility leads to true commitment, obedience. And then lastly, the essentials of the commitment. So why, why, did, they, why did they keep commit to these certain aspects of God's life? Why, why these laws instead of others? Let, let's read in chapter 10, beginning in verse 30. So they've promised to make this, they've signed their names on it. And they say, so what will we do? Here are the contents of it. Here's what we're going to do. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take the daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly <coughs> excuse me, a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular offering, grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, and the holy things, and the sin offering to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people's people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's house, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground <clears throat> and the first fruits of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring the house of our God, to, to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in their house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as is, is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the firstborn, first of our dough, our contributions, 
the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all their towns where we labor, and the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithes of the tithes of the house of our tithe of the tithes of the house of our God to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers and where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. So there's three essentials to this commitment that they make. Three essentials to the commitment that they're making, and that is the the family, the Sabbath, and giving. The family, the Sabbath, and giving. And in verse 30, we see that uh, God's people are recommitted to the family. Now, this has been a, a big problem in the the history of God's people, and that, and that's you know starting basically with Solomon was to, was to marry wives from other nations that brought in the worship of other gods into, into the people of Israel. And so the people are recommitting, we will not do this. And the family is the bedrock institution of creation. Other institutions such as the government would not be a thing apart from the family. Neither would the church. Without the family, there would be no propagation of the human race. So strong, godly families are foundational in the church as well. Because the church is itself is a family. Families matter to God. As I said last week about these, uh, about separating from the surrounding culture, the, the, the people of God were told to separate from the surrounding culture. It didn't have to do with their race or their, it didn't have to do with, with their ethnicity or because God didn't like them, but with their religion because God hated their false worship. And so God says, separate from them. Any, anyone who wanted to worship the true God could, but they had to submit to the laws of God. They, they had to come in. I mean, notice Rahab from Jericho and, and Ruth, a Moabite. These are people who typically would be separated from God, but now they are brought in. God wanted his people to be devoted to him, purely devoted to him, and not follow other gods. They were not to intermarry across religious lines. And in 1 Corinthians, that law comes over to us in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians God wants his people to be purely devoted to him and not to be unequally yoked. So they were not to intermarry. And friends, we want to take care to define the family the way the Bible defines family. We do, we don't want to buy into the notion that there are, you know, those church people who do traditional families, but there's also modern families. A biblical family is made up of a man and a woman in a committed marriage for life who normally have children as a part of their marriage. And the family of God is predicated on this. The family of God is predicated on God the Father adopting children into his family on the accomplished work of Christ on the cross 
and the applied work of the Spirit to each individual, bringing us into the family of God. So the nuclear family is only a a pointer to a greater family, the family of God. However, that, that doesn't take away the importance of the human family. As God's family, we all, whether married, single, same-sex attracted, wherever we are, we, we all need to be accepted and loved and valued in this family. So as God's family, brothers and sisters, let's support and nurture the family, knowing that it points to a greater family, the family of God, but God is committed to this. We commit ourselves to what God commits himself to. And this is what the people do in verse 30. We're, we're going to come back and have a, a, a family in the way that God wants us to have families. The second essential is the Sabbath. Not only are they committing themselves to, to family, and, and we should too, they're committing themselves to Sabbath, Sabbath rest. How we apply the Old Testament is, is tricky. It's tricky business for New Testament believers. But in Romans 6.14, uh, the Bible tells us that we are not under law anymore, but we are, we're under grace. We're not under the law as a means of being justified before God. So in that sense, the law reveals our inability to come to God through the law. However, but the Old Testament does reveal God's character. The law reveals God's character. There's, there's no defect in God's law. The law is not defective. But it was never meant to save people. The law cannot save unless it's kept perfectly, and, and then it doesn't save. The person who keeps the law doesn't need saving, right? But there's another use of the law, and that is to reveal how someone is rescued by God's grace can live a life that pleases him. So this is where it's, it's complicated and, and no simplistic answers for how the Old Testament uh, is to be fulfilled in the New Testament. What part of God's laws are we, are we supposed to obey and, and, and what, what parts are, are done away with? The people of Israel had their religion and their nationality bound up together. They were a nation that outsiders were to come and see. Come and see what God is doing and then become one of us by trusting him for yourself. And now after Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, we now have become a holy nation as well. But we are a nation made up of every tribe, tongue, and people group. We are the church. And some of the the laws applying to the Old Testament people of Israel, like the offering of animals, that that law has been put aside because Jesus fulfilled it. See Hebrews. The law of mixing clothes together has been put aside. You can, you can see the New Testament for that. Uh, or the eating of shellfish. Can I get an amen? The eating of shellfish has been put aside. See the book of Acts. None, none of these apply to the New Testament people of God. So specific Sabbath laws do not apply today, but the Sabbath principle does apply. And here's what they're recommitting themselves to. They're recommitting themselves to rest. This principle is one day in seven, you shall rest in worship. And now as the people of God, we rest in Christ's finished work. 
we see that he has called us to worship together as God's people one day per week. As one pastor says, we, we've been given a new day, the Lord's day, to enjoy. Our day is not a, a sober day of withdrawal. It's a day of, of, of jo- active, joyful surface. So how might we, friends at the branch, brothers and sisters who have committed your life to worshiping here, how might we commit to worshiping on, this, you know, on the Lord's day? Some people have called the Christian Sabbath, but it's the Lord's day. How, how might we commit to reserving one day in seven for, for worship and, and fellowship and for Christian witness? Because friends, this is, a, this is a testimony for the world that says, uh, we don't believe that we, we have to work this day because God is always at work. We're, we're gonna let our fields rest, is what the people said. We're, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna rest and worship the one who created and redeemed us. It's a testimony of the world, but it's also good for you. You, you can't keep going at the pace you're going, some of you, friends. Who are working constantly, even when you're off work, you're thinking about work. Or even when you're not in school, you're thinking about school. You, you can't sustain that. God has made you to need rest. He's, he, he's, he's made you to need worship and the fellowship of God's people. I, I can't create any rules here, and I, I wouldn't want to because God hasn't uh, for us. But what does it look like for you in your life? It is a testimony to the world, and it's good for you. Meaningful commitment looks like observing one day in seven for worship and rest. So these people commit to the family. And now as, as God's family, we can commit to both the nuclear family and, 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 and the church as a way of helping a culture and humans flourish. We can recommit ourselves to the Sabbath principle of, of work and then rest, resting and worshiping and fellowshipping and, and being a witness to Jesus one day in seven. Now, the last thing here, the last essential of this covenant is giving in verses 32 through 39. In verses, uh, the, the first two verses, 32 and 33, you see that they're, they're, um, they're told that they're going to uh, recommit themselves to a temple tax. The people of Israel had written in their law how much money they should give for the service of the house of God. It was a temple tax. In Exodus chapter 30, 11 through 16, the temple tax is, is fixed at a half shekel. Now, in Nehemiah 10, it says it is a third of a shekel. Why? There'll be a quiz later. Just kidding. I'm kidding. That's a bad joke during finals week or whatever it is. It's unlikely that, you know, the people of God who take God's law seriously would have, would have changed it. Like, you know, I know you said a half shekel, but really what I'd like to do is a third of a shekel. Is that cool? And, and we'll just put it down. Um, that's probably not what happened. So it needs some explanation. Why did this change? Here's what one commentator said. Since not even the priests were free to alter God's law, we have to explain what happened. Usually this is explained by assuming that the, the Jerusalem and the Babylonian shekels had different values. Once they were under a Jerusalem economy, now they had been under a Babylonian economy, and so they, they, they're different values. And so they probably matched up. That's not unlikely. 
Another way to think about it is that by noting that in Exodus, the tax was to be paid only when a census was taken, while in Nehemiah, it was paid annually. All right, so this, they're not trying to get out from, from paying more than they were supposed to. They were, they, were, they were willing to do what God wanted them to do, and, and uh, there's good explanation for this. But friends, what's the principle for us? If, if the worship of God is going to happen, God's people are gonna have to give for it to happen. If God's people don't provide for worship, then who will? But the, the money, the shekel, the temple tax wasn't the only thing they provided. They, they had provisions in, in verses 34 through 35. They made provisions for worship. The, the, the Levites, remember, were the, the temple servants. They were, they were those who did not have an inheritance of land. God, God had told them, the Levites will not get a land because the Lord, their God, is their inheritance in Leviticus. And they were not given a land but they were given the Lord. And these signers of the covenant, they, these signatories of the covenant knew that a meaningful commitment meant more than just writing a check or setting up a recurring charge to the temple on, on bill pay. They, they would have to make other provisions for the temple and, and help these Levites out. So they would, they would make other provisions for the temple. You, you notice in there that they would provide wood and the, the first fruits of all that they had. There are other things as well as money, to give to the work of God's people. To give to God's work. You, you know, you, you can provide time, talent, and treasure. Uh, you can provide your, your time and your talents in other ways. Uh, you, you, can provide, uh, you can provide money for, for other ministries in the area, like, like a Love, Inc. There, there are things that you can do to, to give to those in need so that God's work might be done. So it's not only the, the temple, tax, the other provisions for worship. In verse 36, you see that they were to give their very their firstborn. It belonged to the Lord. It says, you, you know, in, in, in the law, in Exodus, you can redeem your firstborn with the payment of the redemption price. Uh, or, or you could bring the firstborn of the animals, you could break their neck for the offering, or you could, you could redeem your firstborn sons by, by, giving, by giving money for, for the worship of God by his people. And friends, this is a reminder, the dedication of the firstborn, it's a reminder that all life is a gift from God and is owed to him. God created us, and in Christ, on the cross, he redeemed us. This is why Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I, he also says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. These people were making a, a meaningful commitment to, to God by giving of themselves by giving of their time, talent, and treasure. And, and lastly, in verses 37 through 39, uh, they, they would give the tithe. It literally means a tenth. Israel was obligated to give 10% of everything they had back to God, whatever it was, their, their tips, their, uh, their, their earnings. If, you know, if they won a raffle, they'd have to give 10% of that to God. This is on top of the temple tax. 
So like the Sabbath law, I don't believe the New Testament Christians are obligated in the same way the Old Testament saints were on this, this 10%. But I think the principle still applies for us. There's, there's no passage in the New Testament that carries over the tithe in this specific way. However, according to the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust decay and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. For no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. So, we're not under the Old Testament law to, uh, of these specific laws to bring a tenth. But James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. Where the ethical issues are concerned, it is always the case that when you pass from the Old Testament to the New, the standard goes up rather than down. It's not 10%. It's 100%. We owe God everything. All of ours is for God. The question is not how much are we supposed to give, but how much do we need to live off of? And friends, again, I will put no rule on you what you have to give to this church or any other Christian ministry. I I don't know, but I think the principle here is, the principle of the tithe here is, uh, are we seeing everything as God's? And are we giving some back to God's work? Whatever that might be. This is, this is just part of our discipleship. I don't know how much that is. I don't, you know, it, you, if you're a member here, it, it is, is good to, to give to the work of the ministry because you've covenant to do that. But this isn't the only place you have to give. There are other people and other ministries that you can give to as well. But the question to ask is, do I see everything as God's, and am I willing to give it back to him? Commit to him. Now, why? Why do we do all of this stuff, right? Is it, is it, is it just for status? Is it just so we can, we can say, you know, that person thinks I need to do this, so I'm going to do this? Is it, is it a, a, a because of guilt? I need to commit my life uh, in, in this way to, to do all these things so I can earn God's favor back. I, I, need, to, I need to make this commitment so, so God will be pleased with me and then show me mercy. Oh, friends, that's, it's the other way around. These people commit to all of these things because God has already shown them mercy. He's already brought them out of the exile. He's already put them in the land. He's already established them. He's already, they're already bearing fruit from the, the labors that, that, that they've taken part in, in in Jerusalem already. And now out of the abundance of the mercies of God, they're committing their lives back to him. Friends, it's so rare that a broken marriage is restored. It's, it's so rare, you know, the, the John and Grace scenario but the mercies of God are so powerful and so beautiful that it can restore the most hardened sinner. 
His merciful law can bring conviction of sin to the vilest of sinner who truly believes a pardon from Jesus receives. He will restore all of those who repent of their sins. But friends, if you repented of your sins, it is going to result in a meaningful commitment to him. Not a perfect commitment. You'll have to renew that covenant often. And and that's why we come to the Lord's table every Sunday. We're we're reminded that the whole reason we can make a meaningful commitment is because the mercies of God in the bread and the cup. The mercies of God. We're renewing the covenant. We're reminding ourselves again, we, we want to live meaningful Christian lives because of what God has done. He's brought peace to you. He's brought peace to me. And so, now, brothers and sisters, as, as we turn to the Lord's table, Josh is going to come lead us, but I'm just going to give you some directions first. And that is, when we sing the next song, that's the time to come forward and get the bread and the cup and go back. And, and we want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, that's if you've repented of your sins and you're trusting in Christ. And uh, those who are baptized uh, should take the Lord's table with us. Those who have made a meaningful commitment to Christ in this way and are trusting in him alone for salvation. And if you would, yes, thank you. There's some explanation. If you have any questions of any of this explanation, I'd be happy to talk to you. One of the elders would be happy to talk to you. But we are, we are going to take the Lord's table after this, and I want to encourage you to examine yourself and worship God and celebrate during the Lord's table. Let's stand together as we sing. the grave. He is David. 
Spirit move. 